0: It's about being good stewards of our tax dollars, everybody's tax dollars, um, not just those who want something or those who don't want something.
1: Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. I'm Christopher Mitchell at the Institute for Local Self Reliance. And a little bit self aware that I'm in a, a room of people walking around here at the uh, Opryland. Land. Um, we are at Fiber Connect, and I finally have an opportunity in person to do an interview with Heather Mills, who is the Vice President for Grants and Fund Making Fun. I ran out of steam there. Good, you
0: got you got it mostly. Grants and
1: fundraising opportunities.
0: <laughs> Grant and funding strategies. Grant and funding you strategies. Go. You got oh, it. <laughs>
1: yeah. So, um, and, and when we're in person, we get to have a little bit more fun with these intros. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So, um, Heather, I think you, and let me just embarrass you for a second, uh, but I feel like you're one of the, the secrets behind CTC in that, like, Ooh. everyone knows Joanne's name and everyone knows that CTC does a ton of work from working with states to cities to counties to um, all, all kinds of things. It uh, wouldn't surprise me if at one point you had a contract to develop a broadband plan for Mars. Mm. Um, and I feel like you're often, uh, behind the scenes holding things together. You've got an incredibly talented staff, but, but you're the one that's not always out there on the road talking about CTC.
0: But more and more so, and I'll tell you the Mars contract was complicated. It was so dusty. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I feel really lucky to work for such a wonderful company. I feel like I have purpose and I am who I am today because of the people that I work with. They, they really are fantastic.
1: We all know that Joanne's a monster behind closed doors. (laughs) No, she is not. (laughs) Um,
0: She's a great mentor and a wonderful friend, and I'm lucky to have that.
1: So I'm curious, uh, we're going to start by you telling me that I'm wrong about a lot of the things I've been saying, or at least that I have the wrong perspective, (laughs) as we have uh, people are are coming by with uh, wheeled suitcases. So Mm. we'll see how this all turns out. Usually it's just a nice little pleasant background noise. Um, I just always like that people are staring at us. Uh, With microphones. Right, right. Um, Big microphones. You got to have the big microphones. (laughs) So I've been, you know, and Kim is here. She just stepped away from the table for a second, but Kim McKinley's here. Her, me, several other people have been talking about how bead is the most complicated, onerous broadband program uh, that the United States government has devised. And you, if I was to be as accurate as I could be, basically said, get over it. <laughs> this is important stuff. We have to make sure that
0: we have the right um, qualifications. This is not an emergency program. This is our tax dollars, infrastructure dollars. A lot of them. A lot of them. And the team at NTIA, the team with, with Con- they've designed this to be a thing where they're trying to be as responsible as possible with our tax dollars. It is a planning process and then an implementation process. So, yeah, get over it. <laughs>
1: so I, I love I love it. And first of all, one of the things I love about, um, I, and I feel like hopefully you're going to be more direct. Joanne, like in a, when we're having a drink, Joanne will tell me to my face that I'm totally wrong. And then when I put on a <laughs> microphone, she tries to be nice to me. I don't want you to be nice to me. I want you to tell me that I'm wrong. Like, so let me, let's just, let's go through this for a second, because I feel like, One of the things that I'm seeing is what you said. I think that they, that these people in NTIA are doing the best they can to try to make sure that they're the best steward of public dollars. Yes. I don't know that they're going to have that effect, unfortunately. Like, I don't think a letter of credit is really going to change, you know, (laughs) like the number of of high quality uh, ISPs that perform.
0: Right. So you've brought up... uh, uh, actually, you brought up something that should be called the irrevocable letter of credit, which okay. is a very different product than a letter of credit. And you're and, one of the
1: only people that could tell me that. <laughs> Most people <laughs> and don't even know. <laughs> I
0: think I think that um, we'll see some refinements to to that. There've been um, much there has been much pushback, um, mm-hmm. as I understand it, uh, about that particular requirement in in and middle mile uh, in general because it sort of uh, it could set a dividing line. Uh, Overall, So that we should be getting clarification about that. There has been discussion, um, as I understand it. Um, But for everyone's edification, an irrevocable letter of credit is not a letter of credit specifically. It requires the bank to basically set aside the money that you're asking for. Maybe it's 10 million, maybe it's 20 million, maybe it's 100 million dollars. They can't invest that money. So you are paying a premium for them to not make money on investing that money. And oftentimes they'll do the calculation based on what they project those losses could be. Mm -hmm. So it could be a very expensive endeavor. Especially
1: in a time of rapidly changing (laughs) interest rates. And for
0: anyone who went through the RDOF process, they know exactly what I'm talking about. What's nice about the Middle Mile program is it's a scalable thing. Um, uh, uh, As you make your way through the implementation process, you can reduce the overall requirements um, for levels of money set aside with the uh, ILOC But um, I don't recall specifically having three NOFOs issued at the same time was incredibly overwhelming. Right. Um, so sometimes I mix up the, the various uh, requirements in my head. But um, I don't recall specifically uh, for Bede uh, how that was um, outlined in the applications. And for, to a particular extent, I think the states will have to, um, you know, given the guardrails that were set up in Bede, design that program appropriately for them.
1: So I just wanted to, to get on the record here on the Broadband Bits podcast because this was something that I thought was a real gem in the Connect This show. Uh, connect This. Um, <laughs> Kim, Kim's giving me that, that look here, um, which is uh, which is an amazing show that everyone should watch every minute of. But in it, um, one of we had on a, an ISP from North Carolina, um, Alan Fitzpatrick. Alan runs a wireless ISP. Well, it's a wired and wireless ISP. Um, so Alan Fitzpatrick with Open Broadband had applied for a great grant for this part of North Carolina, and he ultimately was denied because of this letter of credit issue, even though the company is doing terrific, and uh, the people in that area haven't been served. Meanwhile, his company has gone on to continue doing great things, and I I feel like the FCC has a history of using this letter of credit as like a proxy for whether a, um, you know, a company is, is solid and, and not at risk of default, and I think you know and this we talked about this a little bit last night in other contexts but i feel like the the government state and federal governments are too risk averse when it comes to being worried about defaults i think one of the things that i would say is that in in response to this is cuz i think you're saying um,
0: it's our tax dollars, Chris. I know
1: that it's right, but here's the thing, right? So our tax dollars will be used to put fiber in the ground or steel strand on poles, and if it, if a company goes sure. default, we'll still have those assets unless they really screw it up. So that's where it strikes me: the federal government should invest more in making sure that that there are good network engineering, uh, so that whoever ends up buying it on a fire sale price after that company goes default. We'll still have those assets and people will still be served.
0: Sure. I guess there's a, a little bit of, you know, a quality concern too, like from a very high level. Mm-hmm. It's our tax dollars. I want I want them to be as particular as possible. And yes, um, it is very frustrating when you put all that level of effort into applications that don't get funded mm-hmm. for various reasons. Um, a lot of the time these days it's because those, those programs are oversubscribed and any reason that the um, agency has to say no could like creep up. Mm -hmm. So that is why it is more important than ever. If you don't think that you can meet the um, guidelines and the specifics and check all of the boxes that, and and you have questions about those things, that as an applicant, you are reaching out um, either to the qualified consultant that I hope you've hired to help you even in in just the side you know Mm -hmm. advice area qualified or directly to qualified qualified
1: qualified qualified consultant
0: or directly to the agency themselves to have a conversation about Mm -hmm. why you didn't or why you can't or why you don't think you need to Um, that's really important Um, checking all of the boxes in a a grant application is specifically probably the most important thing that you can do as you're going through and understanding you know, whether or not you can submit the Mm -hmm. application.
1: Right. Now, the issue of labor is another major one that comes up. And here, I'm curious because you have more visibility into states, I feel like, with the work that you do. And I feel like you're kind of on both sides of this where you're helping states to develop these programs and making sure that, that we're not using taxpayer dollars to push down wages with unscrupulous um, you know, actors that are trying to get money. Uh, at the same time, uh, ISPs that do have good labor relations, I feel like get caught in the middle of a deeply flawed federal approach. David, this bacon to how they actually can implement this and follow the rules and I don't know I don't know if you feel that way when I hear from ISPs a lot of times I'll hear just that like when they, they throw out the kind of wages they're expected to pay it's out of line with what uh, people actually make when good jobs in these rural areas. Uh, at least that's what – so, I mean – What do
0: you mean? You mean the wages are too low or the wages are too high? The wages high?
1: are too high. So, so, for instance, like my – did you work – you worked on BTOP stuff. Yes. Um, so, I remember Reedsburg, Wisconsin, when I had spoken with them, you know, like they're um, they in a situation where they were looking – the, the federal government was expecting them to pay construction wages out of Madison for this work that is done in a rural part of Wisconsin and um, in even less specialized work. And they were really frustrated because they were like, we we can't pay this. You know, like it's a, it's, a, it's, it's, it's not only is it a problem for our, the model that we try to get the money for, and, and obviously, like, I think we've, you've run into this enough that you know that many people submit these applications without knowing what it looks like to comply with Davis Bacon.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, and I would say um, that is probably one of the most important pieces, understanding what you're getting yourself into as Mm -hmm. you're approaching these applications is really important. I don't have a particular opinion about whether a wage is too high or too low there. That Mm -hmm. is something that is out of my hands, out Mm -hmm. of your hands even. Um, I do think you don't know my power. (laughs) (laughs) I do think it's important (laughs) to pay a living wage to to people, a good wage and what Mm -hmm. they're worth. Um, But when you're approaching an application, um, understanding all of those things is mm-hmm. pretty important. And if you're going to spend the time and energy from your staff to put together an application, and you don't understand what your overall obligations are, that's a problem.
1: Don't do something halfway. Don't you do something really commit halfway. to it.
0: You are essentially asking the grant-making agency to be an investor in your mm-hmm. project. That means you need to treat them like an investor, mm-hmm. um, and you have to answer to them as well. Right. That is the the, the framework that I hope everyone thinks about you're not entitled to grant money just because you filled out an application. You are lining up against all of the other applicants. And most of these applications coming forward here um, from NTIA, these are merit applications, um, which means that you have to um, make sure you go through and understand what the scoring process is. And if you don't understand what the scoring process is, you've really handicapped yourself because that should guide you in how you scope out the work and the approach for your application overall. And
1: every state will have a different scoring process, most likely.
0: Uh, Probably. Uh, Some will um, simply utilize the programs that they already have in place and maybe make a few augmentations here and there to fall in line with the requirements of the BEAD program. Mm -hmm. Um, Some may establish whole new programs as well. Yeah.
1: So another issue is the permitting, which I think you understand far better than I do. Mm-hmm. But it seems like BEAD requires a higher level of permitting than we've seen in other projects yeah. uh, in terms of environmental review. Is that not right? Am I just collapsing two things together?
0: I think what you're focusing on is a requirement for a discussion in the application of the climate resilience. That's very different than uh, I was going to come to that next. Assessment. I was thinking of it separately.
1: Yeah. I had thought, and this is where... I get a little bit confused. I mean, because I feel like people project onto me an understanding of these programs that you actually have, and I'm always uncomfortable with it because I really just fake it. <laughs> and so I had thought like there was a level of environmental review that was required for even just attaching to existing poles, uh, if you're building
0: the NEPA process, which is the National Environmental Preservation Act, and the you can laugh at me, it's okay. And Others the do. Section 106, which is the um, National Historic Preservation Act, as well. Anytime you put a shovel in the ground with federal money, you mm-hmm. have to go through the NEPA and uh, one of section 106 process
1: when you say shovel in the
0: ground like before it, you, you might, start digging no
1: i understand that but even if you're not digging you still it. so I'm, you're just using it metaphorically being, but but literally if you're doing a project a project
0: before you start that project right. okay. you have to get clearance to go ahead and, mm-hmm. and it's about due diligence it's about making sure that you're not going to you know ramshod your way through a, a wetland area that mm-hmm. has you know Protected species, maybe living in it, like right. turtles or something. Sure. Um, and uh, to make sure that you know you're taking care of our land, our country. Right.
1: Charismatic microfauna.
0: But there's a difference between a a discussion and an application about climate resilience and the NEPA process or the pres- uh, pres- mm-hmm. SHPO, I think, is State Historical Preservation Officer uh, contact. Um, for any application that we put together for our clients, we generally do, I'm going to call it a a preliminary environmental report where we go through, and it doesn't take us very long to do it, and it's one of the last things that we do once we've got a solid statement of work because I've got lots of clients who are probably chuckling as they listen to me talk Mm -hmm. who like to change their mind about small details (laughs) at the very end, which affects an entire application.
1: I remodel my home constantly, and changing your mind at the last second is the best part about being in charge of something.
0: (laughs) Sure, except it causes the people who are doing the work to stay up all night on the night that something is due yeah. to make sure that it gets yeah. done, yep. <laughs> or the night the night before something is due. So um, those changes trickle down through the entire application. But um, so we we typically put together what I would say is the basis for an environmental assessment. Understand that. Any, almost any broadband project is going to be what is known as categorically excluded in certain ways um, from a number of those requirements because if you're going aerial, you're not really on existing poles. You're not really impacting the environment at right. all. It's regular work. And most of the time when you're installing uh, underground, um, you're direct boring. Or trenching in a way that is not going to meet a level of criteria for any state or even the federal government to say um, we're disturbing so much ground that we have to tell you about it. Even in California? Uh, California is a different story. Okay. That, that's a whole other.
1: I just wanted to make you will not have to go into it. I just wanted <laughs> to make sure because sequo- every state is
0: different. Let me put it that way.
1: Sure, every state every is, is different. You have the private right of action, perhaps, might be a different issue it's in different, California. Yeah.
0: yeah. Um, uh, but we're talking about federal grants, so sure. um, in this case with the climate resilience question. What they're particularly asking is for applicants to explore, hey, what could happen in your what's common? Do you get mm-hmm. hurricanes? Do you have wildfires? Mm-hmm. Do you have earthquakes? If we install this, if we if we invest you know, this money with you, what would happen if something went wrong? What would happen if a, a tornado came around and wiped out all of the uh, poles mm-hmm. that have your infrastructure on it? What right. happens then?
1: Well FEMA takes care of it. Boom, I'm <laughs> done. <laughs>
0: Um, So it's an exploration of that. It's more about documenting and checking a box, if you will, of, okay, so we live in, uh, in Northern California, Northern California, and there were absolutely wildfires that came through here before. Here's, you know, what we plan around that potential and how Mm -hmm. we will, you know, come back from that if needed. Um, that's what they're talking about. right? Um, And there is specific guidance in in the um, application, guidance about how to answer that question in particular, and they give you prompts and stuff. So um, it's not like you're unguided and it shouldn't be looked at as this um, mountainous thing that you have to climb and put a flag on top of. It's a discussion.
1: And hopefully states will make this more clear, right? Because I think some people are looking at the BEAD Uh, rules, and they're like, I don't really know how to deal with this. I was like, okay, well, like you don't have to deal with that. The states are dealing with the bead guidance. They're going to develop programs that you will then, and guidance that you'll follow. Sure. I have to say that um, when it comes to climate resilience type stuff, like there's nothing you can do in a lot of these cases. Right? I mean, I just think about like... Right, that's exactly um, why yeah. I say like it's right. a discussion.
0: Like right. they don't expect you to solve the environmental right. issues that lead to Because the fires are a
1: melting conduit as I understand it. Correct. Like, like, it's, it's not like we're going to go, oh, well, we'll just go 30 feet underground. It's,
0: like, a, it's about a due diligence <laughs> exercise, if you will, of mm-hmm. documenting what could happen.
1: And that you're prepared for and it. And
0: that you're prepared for it. Mm-hmm. And that's why people shouldn't be lighting their hair on fire over those sorts of things. Is it a little extra effort to yeah. have that discussion? Yeah. But again, these are our tax dollars. They want to understand that you've thought through these things and that you understand what, you know, you're getting yourself into.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, the issue that I have with, um, with some of these issues all combined is that I feel like while there is, again, it's this sense of we want to have the due diligence. We want to have the best providers move forward. I just think a lot about, and I don't know if you were involved with um, Santa Cruz and CruzIO, the ISP there. They were looking at a public-private partnership, and I was really excited about it. It looked pretty cool. <laughs> and at the end of, uh, of a process of negotiation, uh, the ISP, as I understand it, they may have a different characterization. I think they kind of walked away because they're like, look, like this looks to us like we would be taking on more risk and we don't need to do that. We're a successful ISP. What we're doing works. And sure, it would be nice if we could expand our services rapidly to a lot more people throughout Santa Cruz. But eh, we're we're fine doing the, the, the way we are. And I don't want to be missing out on those ISPs. I feel like in many ways, those ISPs are the ones we want to figure out how to get them to expand. And I worry that these rules will make it so that just Charter and the companies like Starlink and others where it'll be extremely high cost as designated by the states will be more attractive rather than cooperatives and the local entities. And so that's what it comes down to because I feel like you have an attitude that I've heard before, which is sort of like, we're setting a high bar. This is really important. And I feel like it might be that that high bar is actually leading us to like lower performing operators because they can put teams together that will figure out how to manage these processes.
0: I heard two things there. Mm-hmm. I heard you say a lot of wham I, I heard you say it's okay to have less than stellar, if you will, uh, infrastructure if it allows for you know more entry. Is that no, basically no. what you're saying? I think I was
1: just I was sort of getting a little bit off point. My point <laughs> is that my point is that states are going to de- determine where the areas are extremely high cost. We're going to have even more ISPs competing there, and like Starlink's going to be great at like you know a, a lot of a lot of this stuff. I think in order sure. to um, be competitive, sure, um, and they're not going to have to worry about climate resiliency, <laughs> which is a major benefit for them. In fact, that's one of the reasons I love Lloyd Herberts.
0: Actually, they might because there's a question of what happens when if someone loses their their equipment on the the receiving end mm-hmm. so how do they how are they planning to fix that and are they going to make the uh user pay for that or mm-hmm. is that an insurance thing those mm-hmm. are like what four or five hundred dollar they of the charge finance? like
1: 550 but it's like a thousand dollars manufacturer so, so that's
0: yeah. what i think where the that's in my mind where the discussion would be if they're applying mm-hmm. for those sorts of things that, in regards to climate resilience mm-hmm. uh, planning
1: but let me ask them more let me let me let me distill my wandering down sure. to i'm afraid that even as we try to do due diligence. It would be better if you just let me pick the ISPs that were the best to get the money. <laughs> I disagree.
0: <laughs> I think the process is designed to be rigorous on purpose. Um, it's about being good stewards of our tax dollars, everybody's tax dollars, mm-hmm. um, not just those who want something or those who don't want something. I understand your point of view, and I, I, I absolutely uh, get where you're coming from with mm-hmm. that question, um, but I don't, I don't know that, um, that it will shake out like that at all. I think that this process is designed to be rigorous on purpose. And mm-hmm. each state will have their own idea about how to implement this as well. So. If we
1: weren't going to lose our clean tag, I would suggest that you're about to quote the big Lebowski with, you're not wrong, and Walter. You're just.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it is the rug that ties the room together. <laughs>
1: So let's talk a little bit about the fun stuff that that you've seen and um, interesting projects that you've worked on. Uh, Let me start by just asking you about states. Uh, You've worked, and I'm sure you're in the process of working with a few states, you've observed a ton of states. Oh, yeah what are some of the best things you've seen states doing uh, in order to improve broadband? Not necessarily just related to all this federal money, but what are some of the best practices you've seen in states? For people who aren't here in the room watching, uh, I didn't give Heather any warning about no. this deep question, so she's staring off into the middle distance pondering right now.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Can you be more specific?
1: Mm-hmm. So from an infrastructure point of view, like I felt like Minnesota was a real leader eight years ago. And, um, and since then has really lost its footing. And what are some of the best practices that you're seeing from States to like, make sure that they're wisely spending infrastructure dollars, getting it out there in these high cost areas.
0: They're trying to hire the right people. Um, and that's really challenging right now because, you know, everybody wants to hire a broadband specialist. Mm-hmm. Um, I just got an email has... asking me to
1: promote some jobs. Oh, are you really? That's
0: great. <laughs> <laughs> so, people who understand the industry, like really understand the industry, um, are, I would say, Mostly here, <laughs> few and far between, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and th- that, for me, is the the first best step that, that that they could take, and that they have been taking. And um, a number of states are really trying to find good qualified people, um, and that's not that's not necessarily an easy like political appointment or you know. And what y- you're also seeing is the federal government hiring for the same reason. I think NTIA is um, got a, a very um, great plan to hire somebody for each state that will be like the liaison. Mm-hmm. Um, that's challenging. That's fifty people from mm-hmm. our industry right. working for the NTIA, doing good work. But it's that means that that's fifty less people. Yeah, I can't name fifty level.
1: people that like are immediately like the ones that you go to for the sort of work. And, like
0: the size of broadband <laughs> offices. Like I think this was on your panel the other day. Like you guys were talking about. Like most broadband offices have two people in. Them. Right. Yeah. Well, South Office has maybe three. Three. <laughs> right? Yeah. That's challenging. <laughs> -hmm. So again, there's only so many people out there that understand really the mechanics of of all of this and are able to navigate as well the political atmosphere that they're finding themselves in as well. That's a whole other level of challenge.
1: If I had to guess right now, I bet half of the states are probably hiring their head broadband person in some sort of process right now.
0: I think that's probably about right, and it's going to take them some time. And quite frankly, it should take them some time Mm -hmm. if you're you know, if you're being rigorous, which most states are Mm -hmm. um, in their hiring process, uh, then they're taking the time to do it well.
1: Uh, I should say one of the things that we didn't talk about uh, was the, the issue that's not related to NTIA, um, which is that the federal government is taxing these awards. Oh. But we, we just got some a note this morning for anyone who's listening to this show. Talk to your senators, because some senators are expressing surprise and shock when this is brought up by people who are not insiders that have been telling them for years. Yeah. Uh, and so there may be a movement in the Senate to fix that. And so uh, talking to your senators about the absurdity of taxing these broadband grant awards is a, is a good practice. But this stuff reminds me then of, uh, of California, right? So California is paying 100% of the infrastructure costs. They've been doing this for a while from their uh, KSF uh, fund. And I've thought that that was um, uh, not well advised is how I would put it gently. Uh, on the other hand, I feel like when I hear people defending it, they're like, well, they can put a lot of restrictions in on, on the network and say you have to offer a $40 a month plan and things like that. Do you have any? Do you have any like immediate reaction to whether states should pay a hundred percent of the costs?
0: Um, I don't. I will say um, to, to to pivot back to the NTIA programs that are out there right now. The emphasis is on making sure that the applicants who are asking for money are putting in. I don't want to say they're. They're fair share, but they're, you know, putting in money as well. This is... Skin in the game. G- yeah, that's the what I think the game. Yeah. I think that's the best practice. They need to have skin in the game. And, um, you know, with the Middle Mile uh, program in particular, I want, I want to say that they're looking to, you know, they want a shovel-ready project. And I think there's various levels of shovel-ready project, by the way. But um, they really want to see uh, projects that are well thought out, well planned, and ready to get going. Uh, just to make sure that they're getting as much bang for their buck as quickly as possible because we're running against a time clock now. Mm -hmm. Time clock being the FCC's maps. Um, Because we know as soon as those are released and that, you know, that's not going to be immediately. Mm -hmm. But as soon as those are released, that that starts another time clock for the BEAD funding. That's the implementation piece of it, right. So getting these um, middle mile projects underway as soon as possible is Mm -hmm. only going to benefit the BEAD effort and the digital equity effort down the road.
1: I feel like that phrase, when the FCC maps are released, is like is <laughs> our generations when the Messiah returns. Sure, <laughs> like, next year in Jerusalem, like sort of. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, you know, maybe, maybe when they when maybe. that ha- when that happens. Yeah. <laughs> um. So, uh, what what other so getting away from states to more like local projects. Are there things that you've seen that just really inspire you and, and make you excited and think, I really want to share this on a podcast with Chris Mitchell. Oh. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I think I mentioned to you the other day, um, uh, Scott County, Kentucky. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm really excited for the opportunity that they've, they created. I think we were, we began working with them in October of 2020 um, before we had any indication of, you know, ARPA funds and things like that. Mm-hmm. And um you know they were largely passed over in regards to Off awards. I think there were one or two places where there was an off award. There, uh, I want to say a northern bedroom community, if you will, of uh, the. I'm going to get it wrong. The Lexington area. It's not not very far, um, and it's a really lovely place. I would love to like have another entire life there and mm-hmm. just live in and around Georgetown, Kentucky. It's a great. I'm going to guess petting horses place. and
1: things like that. Well, there's got to be a few around.
0: There's just a. <laughs> All the people there are good people. I I, I can't, like, you can see it on my face. Like, Mm -hmm. I've got a big smile. I really love this place. Mm -hmm. And um, I felt really lucky to work with the team there. Um, Judge Covington um, is uh, uh, one of the best human beings I think I've ever met.
1: And judge being the Kentucky term for county administrator type person? Judge
0: executive is what they call that, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, And and so um, he he had a, a goal to find a way to get broadband ubiquitously throughout the county um, because it was, is largely unserved. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we looked at what the options were and we said, Hey, you know, you guys aren't interested in owning and operating the infrastructure. You're interested in a public private partnership. We can explore what those options are with you. And so they, they issued an RFI a request for information to see who was interested. And mm-hmm. it turned out there was a good amount of interest um, and uh, as such, they immediately turned around and said, let's let's do this, R- an RFP request for proposals and see where that gets us. And at that point, we knew that the NTIA was going to have the, the BIP program, the Broadband Infrastructure Pro- Program, which was the, I think, the one time, there's like a billion dollars in that one, right? I can't remember in, entirely. I was
1: thinking, <laughs> I thought that maybe that was, uh, was it the partnership one that was 300 million? Was that a different one?
0: That's a different one. Okay. I, I'm not sure. Anyway, okay. I just know there was there a lot was of money, money available. There. right? <laughs> <laughs> it's so far in the past. I can't right. believe how long ago <laughs> it was now. And so the goal was to find a partner and then um, – the, the county was able to um, you know the, the partner that they cho- with the partner that they chose they had ARPA funds available to write the check but the, the deal that they structured gave them time to figure out other options as well and so they want to be good stewards of their tax dollars they wanted to be able to use those funds for other ARPA allowed things if possible um, so we uh, worked with the partner to put in a grant application. They were one of the few, <laughs> the 13, 13 or 14, uh, winners of one of the BIP grant awards. And they didn't ask mm-hmm. for much, but what was appealing, I think about that particular project was the partner that they chose, um, the amount of money the partner was putting in, um, you know, was basically like 85% of the project. So what we were looking for was the gap funding, if you will, that the county needed to put in. And then they won the BIP award. And I don't, I can't tell you, I think I cried that day. I was so happy mm-hmm. for, for for that. <laughs> um, and it, it, it has everything to do with the people and the team and the, the rigorous way in which they approached it.
1: Well, that's what I wanted to jump in on for a second, because if I'm not mangling my stories, this is one where you did greater due diligence on, in preparing the RFP so that bidders would have a much better sense of what they were um, getting into so they'd be able to offer more accurate bids.
0: Absolutely. So one of the biggest barriers um, that we have found over the years to getting partners interested is helping them sharpen their pencils. One of the things that we did was we sent a team out into the county. They rode up and down every road. Mm-hmm. And our outside plant team is very knowledgeable. They, they can, you know, eyeball what is there and what is not there and put that into GIS. And we provided the bidders with a, a copy of that. Um, it was like a KMZ or something, mm-hmm. <laughs> a file. And um, it had, you know, basic information in there. The feedback that we got from the bidders was that that was absolutely something that helped them understand. And at that point, the county knew what was there and wasn't there. Right. And... That was really key to moving the ball down the field, if you will, um, to getting this uh, uh, the, even the grant application pulled together in the way that it was because we had numbers. We knew where there was service and wasn't service, um, and what what level of service, mm-hmm. uh, so what type if it was DSL or if it was underground, and we knew it was underground that sort of thing. So it was very helpful to them in uh, getting that done. Yeah,
1: and just for a ballpark figure, I'm going to guess that you know if you sort of estimated a bid. To not do that versus doing something that included that, it's probably a difference of tens of thousands of dollars, like from the point of view of what they're paying a consultant, and maybe maybe a hundred thousand. No, no, (laughs) No, definitely not that much. So I just want to get the sense that like like this is one of those things where when you're putting together when you're a city trying to find a consultant and you're like oh like maybe we could save thirty or forty thousand dollars here, like those tens of thousands of dollars if spent well can result in millions um, right millions of benefits just in terms of a better process and yeah. more rapid deployment and all that and
0: just uh, that's no guarantee of that but it sure. is certainly the, heather mills the says thing... that you will definitely no <laughs> um <laughs> caveat Katie but Espit, this is, let's just walk by it, it is something that Sorry. you that you should be um uh cognizant of is what are the ultimate benefits what is what is your mm-hmm. ultimate goal and if the goal is to um, be able to apply for grants that could garner the funding to do this, then mm-hmm. it might be worth it. But that's not my decision. That is the decision of the, the locality. And it's right. it's a discussion that they need to have. But
1: they need to be informed on this. They need yeah. to be
0: informed and they need to ask questions about like what is the benefit of this? Mm-hmm. Um, what exactly are they doing? Right. Why don't we already have this information? Sure. <laughs> that sort of thing. Um in some cases, you know, this sort of goes back to there's software out there that that helps you document where you're in infrastructure is mm-hmm. uh, and so prior to that kind of software being available it was somebody's brain somebody mm-hmm. right. who, who may have recently retired yes often um often and so they just don't know where that stuff is anymore mm-hmm. um and not we'll, just
1: for public entities private entities very is a very common, well. Im- yeah. Yeah, a very
0: common <laughs> problem and so you know we're seeing less that problem less and less but it's still it's still something we're going to have to deal with especially for the more rural areas mm-hmm. that you know don't necessarily know what's there and what's not there yeah for sure
2: Wonderful. Thank you, Heather. Thank you. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadband bits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at community nets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this and other podcasts from ILSR, including Building Local Power, Local Energy Rules,